Warning, the following podcast has some foul language. You may wish to earmuff the impressionable. It's Monday, May 16th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. It is a depressing day and I'll get even more depressing in the spiel. We are witnessing the aftermath of this horrible carnage in Buffalo, New York, in which 10 people were shot and killed by a white supremacist. Even more were injured. And you know, I do think that there is a special coming together when the motivation of this shooter was something along the lines of racial animus, religious hatred, or something that we as Americans want to specifically say, no, we don't stand for this sentiment. And it's good that we make that declaration. But I think about all the other mass shootings, which is to say most of them, that don't have such a national statement about them. I think of, for instance, we all remember the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, 11 dead, six injured. But you know, less than three weeks later, there was a shooting in Thousand Oaks, California, 12 dead, 22 injured. Maybe when I said it, you said, oh yeah, I think I remember something about this. In the Tree of Life shooting, all the victims were chosen because they were Jewish. In the Thousand Oaks shooting, the gunman, the deranged gunman was said to have not liked nightclub goers. What does this even mean? But there were more dead and there were more injured and we barely remember. If we're in California, we may remember more than if we're in Maryland. But then again, when we think of the Washington DC Naval Yard shooting, we probably remember that if we're from that area and have almost no recollection of that if we're from Springfield, Missouri. But if we're from Springfield, we certainly remember the shooting two years ago of that convenience store and everywhere else but the Springfield, Missouri area saying, what, a mass shooting in a convenience store? Yeah. So this is my point. There are all these other mass shootings in which there is no coming together, in which there is no national statement that we don't believe in this. This isn't who we are. And I have a theory as to why. Because in all the other cases, it kind of is who we are. Not that we want it to be, or not that the vast, vast, vast majority of us wouldn't wish those killings out of existence. But when you don't do anything about them, you show that, well, it's not really the case that we're standing up against them and saying, no, no more, this cannot happen. We'll say no, no more, this cannot happen when the subject is racism or anti-Semitism or targeting a community. But we don't do that when it's just targeting or when the community is all of us. And I think about the victims of all these other shootings, these victims who weren't turned into martyrs. And I do believe that the victims of Mother Emanuel Baptist Church were in fact martyrs and the Tree of Life Synagogue and the Walmart shoppers in El Paso. And I also think that there is certainly a political dimension that is so attractive for us and legitimate of us to point to and say, when there's white supremacy, you know, some of that might have to do with uh, Donald Trump countenancing it. And some of it may very well have to do with Tucker Carlson perpetuating and spreading replacement theory. But as for everyone else, I guess we just say, well, it's guns. And that's the sort of tragedy that doesn't rise to the others. That's the sort of tragedy that doesn't evoke martyrdom, but just, I guess, regular old victimhood. On the show today, I spiel about this in some more depth 
with some more angles. But first, a man who does not deserve to be shoehorned into two very tragic and sad talks about mass shootings in America. A clever and brilliant young guy who is a data analyst who uses his tools to bring us information that we didn't even know we wanted. The name of the new book is Don't Trust Your Gut, Using Data to Get What You Really Want in Life. And the author Seth Stevens Davidowitz joins me next. I read in my job so many books from the social sciences, and there is a way, there is a formula, and it could be a good formula for most of these books to be written that a person with some expertise, often a lot of expertise in the subject area, thinks of a topic, a topic like uh, nervousness, why are people nervous, or a topic like shyness, and then they know most of the studies about shyness, or they research all the other studies about shyness, and then they put together the studies that are out there with their insight, and you got a sociological book about shyness. What I really liked about Seth Stevens Davidowitz's new book, Don't Trust Your Gut, is it's not really about one thing, it's sort of about all the things using the studies as the interesting thing to talk about. Not the jumping off point for the major topic, but the topic itself. What can we tell from data? How can data allow us to run our lives in a better way and why you shouldn't, you know, trust your gut. The subtitle is using data to get what you really want in life. And Seth Stevens Davidowitz joins me again. Hello. Welcome back, Seth. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me again. Let's get down to it. I think that you're just really interested in interesting studies, right? You read 538, you write a bunch of interesting studies, you're a data researcher, and you, without even trying, use data to get insights and to, let's say, lead a better life or just be a more interesting person, right? Yeah, that's true. I uh, I kind of love, I'm a little bit obsessed with data and love data and like my, yeah, my spare time, my free time, I just... Uh, either do studies or read studies and uh, just always love learning about the world. I wanted to write a book, kind of as you mentioned, not just one topic like shyness or dating or ha happiness. I want to write about all the topics and just be like, what's out there on any topic that, that you could think of? I would say I'm 100% like you. I am extremely compelled by a really good study. And the better the study, the more I am willing to or eager to change my behavior. And people don't believe this, but I was reading your book and you talk about what makes for attraction in the dating market and what makes for a happy marriage. And the happy marriage part, and first of all, it's fascinating that the amount of uh, lack of correlation, how uncorrelated the happiness in the dating market traits are to the happiness in the marriage traits are is fascinating. But I literally, there are five, four or five traits of a happy marriage. And some are things like just if you're happy, absent the marriage, you'll probably be happy in the marriage. <laughs> but one is this thing called um, attachment style, which I think I'd vaguely heard of. So I took the quiz that you recommended. My wife took the <laughs> quiz. We are all compelled by this. I ordered the workbook that, the, for like yeah, the $27 yeah. online workbook. I don't know if you've done that. But yeah, exactly because, oh my God, if there are four things that make for a happy marriage and one is conscientiousness and one is growth mindset, which I very much don't have, I very much do have. And one is this thing that I don't 
really understand. I gotta understand that fourth thing. I'm exactly <laughs> yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, a man of my own, and uh, a sports fan on top of this. Yes, uh, a Mets fan on top of this. So. Uh huh. So, but about this uh, attachment style and happy marriage, there's so yeah. much data about what makes us attracted to people because, you know, these days almost everyone dates online and there's much less data about what makes for a happy marriage. So is it that we're so, it's so clear the patterns of attraction online and less, and marriage is just this, you know, mystical alchemaic thing, or is it more that we don't have an app that gives us the happy marriage data. And it's possible that, you know, somehow, I can't imagine how, in 50 years, we'll have just as accurate and detailed data on a happy marriage as we do on what attracts a mate. I talked to some relationship science researchers. They're moving towards an idea that, like, relationships may be somewhat chaotic systems. So the big predictor of, like, a future happiness in a relationship is current happiness in a relationship and like nothing else. So like if you got, once you know, okay, we're this happy now, how happy are we gonna be in two years, three years, however far along they can measure it. The only prediction is this is how happy we report being now. Now, one thing they say may be going on is like you get in these uh, paths that either are good or bad. And once you're there, it's really, really hard to get out of it. So something like you have just a bad interaction early on in a relationship and like it spirals a little bit and then your brain may even associate that person with negative things and once you're there you're kind of like in a little bit of a relationship trap that's hard to get out of and has very little to do with like the actual qualities about you it was just you met in a bad day or something and then you're kind of stuck or you in the opposite you're in a good once you're in kind of a good place it's much easier to continue getting a good place like your neurons are like are telling you to that this person is a good person for you and you right. love you're, them more You're primed, more. I guess, would yeah. be a psychological term. Yeah, although that does contradict every plot of uh, the romantic movies where they they don't meet cute, but they meet in a frictional way. And then, oh my God, you're that you're that jerk who I whatever drove cross country with. To quote Harry Mitzali. Yeah, like in real life, that would be very it would be very hard to get over that original association. Yeah, th- that's exactly right. And I think it says you know it gets to the point of. Will we inevitably be able to predict things? Well, there are some things that we just can't predict. So we can't predict the weather in a year. Like we don't know. We can just say we can go based on the average temperature, but we can't say anything more than that because it's kind of a chaotic system and there's so much going on. And it may be that marriage has some of that of that uh, flavor, and that you know all you can do is kind of averages based on how happy you've been in the past. Maybe the best guess of how happy you're going to be in the future, and ma- and maybe there's this hugely random component in you know, the, the course a relationship takes uh, that make it more unpredictable uh, than uh, dating sites, which like shockingly predictable in what we click on in dating sites where everybody's kind of looking for uh, these very, you know, predictable traits of uh, conventional attractiveness, tallness in a man, uh, people of certain occupations, uh, similarity to oneself. Uh, I found this really surprising. People are 11.3% more likely to uh, ma- to agree to a match with someone who shares their initials in an online dating site, which is just ridiculous. Like, why is our, is someone who shares your initials going to make you happier? 
were predictable in kind of idiotic ways in dating. I mean, that's quirky. That doesn't really speak well of uh, how uh, exalted human beings are. But then you get to the racial aspects, and that's more than just a little disturbing. The discount, the deficit, say, that Asian men have with every female demographic, we're talking about heterosexual dating, is profound. And I'm going to say, I don't know if it's changed over time, but it just really... I don't know, either confirms your lack of faith in humanity, but makes you realize that for whatever noises we make about being progressive, not that much when it really counts. Yeah. Is it more disturbing than the prejudice against height? Because I kind of thought that when I was, I wrote that when I was writing my book, I'm like, this is even more disturbing, but is like racism worse than heightism? I don't know. It's They both seem to just judging people based on a quality they can't control. Uh, but it is. They, they, that one probably does disturb people more, but I think they're both uh, disturbing. And one's one's kind of tradi a traditional uh, source, a traditional like when we think discrimination. Obviously, historically, uh, there have been associations with race for there have been races, an entire race that has been enslaved or uh, slaughtered. I don't think we've ever had you know the rate the a group based on their height or their attractiveness level. Uh, enslaved, but the prejudice based on these other factors, I think is also disturbing in my opinion. Yeah, it is true. It, you know, you don't get in, there's no heightism that's enforced by law. And uh, so that's different from racism. There's no legacy of heightism and all that. But I would say it's probably more disturbing, especially because some of the, yes, Asian men actually make more money on average. So I guess for every uh, inch of height they don't have, I guess they're also shorter on average. There's way to, ways to make up for it. But then you think about the discount that black women face in the dating market and that, you know, that's that's like really disturbing, much more disturbing than uh, someone being it, two inches less. It is, but I also think. give advice based on this, which is that you can take advantage of other people's prejudice uh, because there's no evidence that members of any of these groups based on superficial traits uh, make worse long-term partners. Uh, it, it, there's basically no correlation between the race you're made and how happy you are, or the height you're made and how happy you are, uh, that you can focus more of your romantic attention on some of these groups and you have an easier time uh, maybe getting a, a maid who does have great qualities because uh, the rest of the market idiotically and disturbingly uh, ignores these groups or is less likely to go on dates with members of this group, these groups. Yeah. So I was just thinking about the, uh, the racial aspects and who's discounted and who's prized. And by the way, white men uh, actually among the male heterosexual groups, they're the most uh, attractive, um, of course, White men are also richer, so I'm sure you crunched the numbers and found that even for their income, they're more desired. Is that right, by the way? Yeah, that's that's true. I'm thinking back to the last book you did where you found, based on search terms, the secret racism of people and different areas where search terms include more slurs, for instance. And that was, you know, again, not a great reflection on the American character or just people in general. This, uh, also with a racial component the, and the height component, tells me, oh, whatever optimism you're maybe feeling about the human species, it's not there. What in your findings actually gives you more optimism, reveals something that says something better about people than what we may have thought or even hoped for? Well, I think the research on happiness made me 
uh, optimistic because as dark as society can be, the things that make people happy are really, really simple. You know, being by in nature, being by water, uh, being with friends, uh, being with a romantic partner. But generally, when you look at data, I would say almost always uh, people come across as worse in data than they do when they're talking because people are lying in everyday life and making themselves look better. So the dating market, I mean, if you ask people in surveys, what are you looking for What in a mate? Uh, like people say someone nice, someone dependable, someone I connect with. They don't say someone tall, someone good looking, uh, someone rich, uh, because, you know, they don't either. They're not acknowledging that to themselves or they don't want to acknowledge it to you. And when you look at the actual dating data, uh, they're definitely drawn to those more superficial qualities. Uh, so yeah, I think just about always, uh, the, the world's going to be probably a little bit darker in data, but uh, I guess that that that's not entirely true. So sometimes the absence of dark data can be optimistic. So I was doing this research on uh, you know the, the secret racism that uh, Americans have and the frequency with which they search things like N-word jokes, really really disturbing stuff, and uh, pe people are, are asking me can you research anti-Semitism based on this? And I am Jewish. Uh, so I was kind of looking at the data and I found that there weren't really that many of these searches, like people, I guess the equivalent word for Jews would be the K word. And there weren't many K word joke searches on Google. Uh, so I was, you know, looking at, sometimes I could be a little paranoid. I'm like, you know, I'm living in New York City. There's a large Jewish population. Are my neighbors like secretly thinking, you know, this K word? Uh, and I kind of looked at the data. I'm like, if they were thinking that it would probably show up in Google and they're definitely not. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, there, there are some arenas where you, you are like, okay, you don't need to be paranoid about how people are thinking about you. They're, they're, they're not having those, uh, negative dark thoughts about you. Okay. So, you know, all of this data that's become available in the last really five years or so, I think generally in the popular consensus, it's uh, an outgrowth of how algorithmized our world has become. And that's generally a bad thing, especially in writing and people who contemplate this sort of thing in periodicals and magazine. No one's waxing rhapsodic about all the data that's out there and how we're in a world of big data. You like it. It gives you insight. But do you think of it more as uh, a silver lining to this kind of uh, to this less than optimal trend? Or do you think that all the data, if used right, if that's even possible, actually is a social good and we should, you know, lean into it more and be collecting more data and celebrate the amount of data we have access to? I think it's a huge social good. It's it, it's maybe I agree there are some negatives to it. The online dating, you know, there, I haven't seen great studies on whether online dating is as horrible as some online daters think it is. Uh, and, you know, it, I, I think there's probably some truth to it because uh, it seems like the best way, again, I talked to some relationship scholars, and it seems like the best way to meet someone, uh, because there's so much randomness in whether you connect with someone, the best way is to kind of like a college dorm 
is probably the ideal environment to start relationships where you meet a whole bunch of people, everybody's single over long periods of time. And then uh, two months, in, two months, three months into living together, you're like, oh, wow, we really have a connection. I find you attractive. Uh, let's date. Uh, Unfortunately, everyone in that situation is 18 or 19. Yeah, the problem is college dorms are wasted on the youth and probably the the people when you feel a connection with someone, at least in my case, you don't tell that person that you feel the connection or you hint about it in very immature ways and it never actually leads to anything. Uh, but I think that's a better way to meet people than, you know, swiping on a site where it almost forces you to be superficial and say, well, like they if they ask you, a woman on a, on a app, what height do you want us to show you men in? women are just like, well, I need to pick something. I guess I, I've noticed that I seem to have this attraction to taller men. So I'll put, I don't know, six feet. That sounds good. Uh, whereas if they were in a college dorm and someone was uh, five, eight, five, seven, five, whatever, and uh, they were talking to them and they're, they're spent hanging out with them and they're just like, wow, I really like this person. Uh, they would have probably given that person a shot. So, uh, but, so there is a dark side to some of these, uh, you know, to our digital lives. But I think the data that it's giving us is going to be revolutionary. It's starting to be revolutionary. You know, the, the happiness stuff, uh, like, which, you know, I, I spent two chapters talking about modern happiness research and it's something called experience sampling. Again, where they're pinging people uh, at different times of the day and asking you, uh, you know, how happy you are. There's just all these insights from this. Like one of them, I didn't even include this in the book. Uh, they compared introverts and extroverts how happy they are when they're with people and by themselves and both introverts and extroverts get the same boost in happiness when they're around other people. Even though if you ask introverts, they say they don't. Uh, very interesting as a self-described introvert. I found that interesting. That uh, kind of goes to the title of my book. Don't trust your gut. Uh, my gut is that I like being by myself and I you know, enjoy solitude and just want to lie on the couch and watch a Mets game. And <laughs> I think the data is pretty clear that that's not true. So the, the things that we're learning about what actually makes human beings happy uh, can be revolutionary. And I've, I've lived in my own life that it's not just that you, uh, and it sounds like you're, you and I, I guess, are 100% the same on, on this dimension as you put it, that it's not like you just read one of these studies and you know live your life as you, as you previously did. People can change their life. I literally spend more time in nature having read these studies uh, I've, uh, th there are many different ways, you know, di different things I've, I've changed based on, I do spend t more time with my friends, uh, knowing that as an introvert, I'm probably misleading myself as in thinking that I, I need as much sol I need, uh, you know, as much solitude as I think I need. Uh, so, uh, th there's just way more insights. We're, we're getting so many insights, into these really important questions, uh, that I think could live, lead to a revolution in how we live our lives and uh, like if we figure out what actually makes people happy, uh, if that's just a side effect of basically iPhones, uh, that wouldn't just be like a silver lining among these dark clouds. That would be light clouds uh, all around because that's such an important question, the question of life. The name of the book is Don't Trust Your Gut, Using Data to Get What You Really Want in Life. Seth Stevens Davidowitz is the author. Thanks for joining us. Great to talk to you, Seth. Thanks, bud.
And now the spiel. In the aftermath of the horrific mass shooting in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, we as a culture convene to ask questions. What caused this and what can be done? This exercise has taken on a ritualistic cant as the answers are always familiar with slight variations depending on the circumstance of the last incident. In this case, as suggested by New York Governor Kathy Hochul, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, and other elected officials surveyed, there were three causes, guns, hate, and the internet. As far as the internet, yes, the shooter had been radicalized, had his head filled with white supremacy and replacement theory via the internet. And why the internet? Because that's where all information is, especially if you're an 18-year-old who was kept from actual interactions via the pandemic. Addressing this part of the equation was New York Governor Hochul on Face the Nation. I'm calling on social media platforms to be making sure that they're doing a better job monitoring the hate speech that's out there, especially when it's directed against populations and comes on the guise of white supremacy terrorism, which is exactly what happened here in Buffalo. The problem with this part of the problem is that the social media platforms who would be at all receptive to working with the government already are. The shooter live streamed on Twitch. The Amazon-owned site took the footage down almost immediately. The shooter had a private chat room on Discord, which is like having a private phone conversation, the monitoring of which invites serious legal complications. Finally, the shooter was influenced by 4chan, which operates outside of the reach and jurisdiction of the United States. The founder of 4chan, no longer with the site, does want it shut down. But even if that happened, he acknowledges it will likely mutate into something else. 4chan itself, the locus of the shooter's radicalization, has already spawned a more virulent offspring, 8chan, which is now 8kun. In short, it is true that shooters often use the internet to get ideas, to get angry, and to get inspired. There's no real solution for that. Well, what about the idea that white supremacy is largely to blame? That certainly seems backed up by FBI Director Christopher Ray's testimony before Congress. Racially motivated violent extremism, specifically of the sort that advocates for the superiority of the white race, uh, is a persistent, evolving threat. It's the biggest chunk of our racially motivated violent extremism cases, for sure. Uh, and, in, and racially motivated violent extremism is the biggest chunk of our domestic terrorism portfolio, if you will, overall. I will also say that the same group of people we're talking about have been responsible for uh, the most lethal attacks uh, over the last, uh, say, decade. Domestic terrorism doesn't actually exist in the penal code, but what Ray is saying is that if it did, white supremacists would be a larger threat today than even Muslim extremists. This is slightly different from how Chuck Todd framed things on Meet the Press. It was the latest in recent mass shootings aimed at ethnic groups. Charleston, South Carolina, African Americans in church, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Jewish victims in a synagogue, El Paso, Texas, Latino victims at a Walmart. And now we add Buffalo, New York to the list. Those shootings were all horrific and extremely deadly. The ones Chuck Todd just named are listed as three of the 20 deadliest mass shootings in U.S. history by The Violence Project. The Violence Project keeps what I regard as the authoritative database of mass shootings. They define the crime as one that kills at least four victims other than the shooter. This matches the FBI definition, which is arbitrary, yes, but I also think it gets at what we think of when we think of mass shootings. The kind 
kind that inspire the correct sentiment that these kinds of shootings don't routinely take place anywhere else in the developed world. They're the ones that grab national attention and dictate coverage, soul-searching, and if I'm going to be unsentimental, the never-ending national conversation about what can be done. However, if we're going to correctly name the problem, let's correctly name the problem. White supremacy is an insidious and seemingly metastasizing problem for our society. You heard the FBI director. Mass shootings are a horribly disturbing phenomenon. And while the problem of white supremacy obviously intersects with the problem of mass shootings, it's not the driver. It's not the main cause. It is more the exception than the rule. For instance, the shootings that Chuck Todd named before this last one, the Charleston AME Church, the El Paso Walmart, the Tree of Life Synagogue, those are three of the previous five mass shootings to be driven by racism, according to the Violence Project database. But the other two were perpetrated by African-American shooters against A, white police officers in Dallas, and B, a New Jersey kosher market. If you were to go back to 2015, the year of the Mother Emanuel Baptist shooting, you will find the four shootings that Todd named as fueled by white supremacy. But you'll also find a 2021 shooting fueled by a workplace dispute. We know overnight in Indianapolis, a male gunman opened fire both outside and inside a Federal Express facility. He killed eight people, injured several others, and then killed himself. A 2019 shooting by a disgruntled city employee. Tonight, our hearts go out to Virginia Beach, Virginia, where police say a city employee opened fire in a municipal building and took at least 11 lives. Actually, 12. A shooting fueled by anti-Christian sentiment, which was deadly than every other shooting we've mentioned. This time, the killer and his gun entered a small church in a small town in Texas. And many more. A decade ago, the dominant narrative was of killers inspired by Muslim extremism, like the army major at Fort Hood or this one. Fox 11 in Los Angeles now reporting 12 people confirmed dead in San Bernardino in yet another mass shooting. Now, last year, a young Muslim man killed 10 in a supermarket in Boulder, Colorado. The killing was not classified as an act of terrorism, and there indeed is no evidence for a religious motivation in that case. In 2019, when a white shooter in a nightlife district in Dayton, Ohio, killed nine people, six of them black, investigators say that whatever hate and mental illness were at play, a specifically racist motivation wasn't among them. One infamous mass killing that the media seemed to have gotten wrong was the Pulse nightclub shooting. Portrayed as an attack on the LGBT community, which it was, the evidence is that that venue was chosen just because of the two Orlando nightclubs that featured prominently in the shooter's Google search. Pulse was the one that had less security. If anything, that shooting should be remembered as the largest mass shooting of Hispanics, 36 of the 49 victims. We actually often mistake the reasons behind shootings, though with the manifestos left behind, there is no mistaking that hate. Still, I think there is a problem with identifying the reasoning of the killer as an explanation for the killing, and not just because we often get it wrong. Mass shootings as a phenomenon are on a steady upward trajectory, but the motives change all the time. Chuck Todd stood next to a graphic of four specific shootings and painted a narrative, this one about white supremacy. But you can also do that standing next to a graphic of three or four or seven mass shootings and say, this is a problem of misogyny or of sexual frustration or of marital discord, 
workplace hostility, bullying, or more commonly mental illness. I would in fact surmise that to some extent mental illness is a factor in every mass shooting. But I say with certainty that what is at play in every single mass shooting is guns. Of course it's guns. And that's why I despair a little bit when Chuck Todd asks his experts to look at what seems to be an intractable problem with so many strands to pull apart. We have a toxic stew here. White supremacy ideology that's spreading. Easy access to guns. Permissive internet culture that that almost uh, encourages uh, sharing of this uh, far-right ideology. Where do we start? You start with guns. You end with guns. The permissive internet is so far gone as to be almost a background condition or a kudzu-like unplacable irritant. The specific ideology that is for law enforcement to fight and monitor, but to stop mass shootings, you have to address the mass use of firearms. I've said it before, let me reiterate it, you could ban the AR-15. This rifle and like models are present in a disproportionate number of mass shootings. Gunmen are drawn to them. Apart from having unique ability to do a tremendous amount of damage to bodily tissue in a short amount of time from a great distance, these specific firearms have an almost totemic pull on mass shooters. This gunman's manifesto, which as you've heard runs 180 pages, devotes 98 of those pages to the firearms and tactical gear he's using. He loves his AR-15 variant. He addresses it in a Q&A format. Why is he using it? Question, why did you choose firearms? Answer, because they work. There are very few weapons that are easier to use and more effective at killing than firearms, especially the Bushmaster XM-15 I will be using. He even says that he wants debate about gun laws in the wake of his murders. Now, I'm not letting such people set an agenda, nor do I take his words at face value. Shitposting is a common tactic in manifesto propaganda. But it is so clear that the firepower at hand is a major determinant in body count. Also, I did notice this looking at the data. As the death rate goes up, not the casualty count, the death, the number of deaths in a shooting goes up in the Violence Project's database, the prevalence of body gear and armor goes up with it. Indeed, this shooter took incoming fire and continued on killing others because he was wearing body armor. And I haven't come across a great explanation of why body armor is privately available. So we debate endlessly and fruitlessly how to combat the latest variation on the deadly trend. And most of us agree that bad people are going to do bad things and there's not much we could do to stop it. But the evidence is clear that the less deadly the bad people's arms are, the less deadly the bad people's acts will be. And while there's also no eradicating hate from all our hearts or mental illness from all our minds, we at least recognize that those are some of the causes of the carnage. But we also, and by we I mean the supposedly sane and loving ones, we also ourselves act a bit cruelly and with a dollop of mental deficiency when we put all the blame on the hateful and the ill and none on ourselves. We could do something about this problem. We choose not to, other than occupy ourselves by despairing over the wrong things. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the GIST's assistant producer. Joel Patterson, the GIST senior producer. Michelle Pasca is COO of Peachfish Productions. The GIST is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the GIST. 
Umpru Jipru Dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>